So hello everyone and welcome along to a special audio feature from ED. You're listening to content editor Matt Mace and for the next half an hour or so we're going to be delving deep into the clean energy transition and by delving I mean exploring the energy beneath our feet. We tend to think of renewable innovation as solar panels and giant wind turbines sprawled across the coast, the latest cutting edge technologies that harness the power of the elements. The UK, as the government loves to proclaim, is a world leader in one of these technologies, namely offshore wind, but with the energy cost crisis swelling and heating remaining a key challenge on our own net zero journey, it's time we look to other examples of how nations are harnessing green power. And that's why I've been sent out to Iceland, the Nordic island of jagged landscapes, the northern lights, blue lagoons, volcanoes, glaciers and waterfalls. If any country is proof that the beauty of nature that we are so at risk of destroying can in fact be used to combat the climate crisis, then it's this beautiful island. Almost all of the nation's local electricity and district heating needs are powered from renewable resources, including hydroelectric and geothermal. In total, around 70% of the electricity production in Iceland comes from hydropower, rising to 90% for central heating. And the remaining 30%, well, it comes from geothermal. That is enough to power the needs of around 370,000 people, the nation's entire population, which is similar to that of Coventry or Leicester. So for this special feature, I'm going behind the scenes to speak to some of the change-making organisations in the country that have turned ambitions of a clean, green and self-sufficient grid into reality. Iceland is called the land of fire and ice, but as I arrive, I'm greeted by grey skies and drizzle as we make the 40-minute journey to Reykjavik, where Green by Iceland have invited a host of green businesses to its timber-clad offices. Green by Iceland is housed within Business Iceland, which helps to grow and export corporate solutions with support from the government, akin to a body like Innovate UK. It's during the networking and canapes on the first night that I'm able to grab our first guest for this feature. So first up on this trip of Iceland, I've got a chance to sit down on the first evening with uh, Not Forberg, who is the director of Green by Iceland. Uh, Not apologies if I got the pronunciation of your name wrong. I'm an Englishman abroad, and I always get very kind of self-conscious about my inability to say anything in another language. But I hope that was okay. It was perfect. <laughs> good. good. We're off to a good start on this, and um, yes, uh, we are um, obviously at your offices now, um, so thank you so much for inviting us. It feels very weird to be sitting in a boardroom with a glass of wine each rather than just a, a water, but such is the evening we're having tonight. But um, I appreciate that you've allowed me to basically to drag you away from the kind of festivities that are going mm. on in the networking session to learn a bit more about Green Bar Iceland and, and how the private sector in this country is really working together to hit those kind of big renewable goals that uh, we've discussed earlier. So perhaps we could start with a little bit about Green Bias and, and exactly what it is. My understanding of it is kind of a, a platform for cooperation on climate and green solutions where you kind of partner up the private sector with the public sector. Would mm-hmm. that be fair to say? That would be fair to say. And it's actually, it's a pretty young um, organisation. We just founded uh, four years ago in the summer of 2019. Uh, and correct, we are working proactively in bringing together different stakeholders Uh, whether that is from the government or the private sectors, to collaborate uh, towards reaching these ambitious goals that Iceland has set to reach carbon neutrality by 2040. Yeah, absolutely. And the carbon neutrality goal for 2040 seems huge, but when we obviously learn the context that most of 
Iceland energy uh, and heating needs comes from geothermal mm. uh, renewable sources anyway mm-hmm. I think it's like 99 pretty much uh, mm. almost at 100 it feels like um, a lot of uh, businesses in the UK would be looking at organisations here quite enviously that they've mm. kind of certainly for kind of heating as well um, what have been the kind of I know you're still a relatively new organisation but mm. what have been the key kind of milestones that mm-hmm. Green by Iceland mm-hmm. and, and your I suppose, network of companies have been able to achieve mm-hmm. in that short mm-hmm. time. So one of the initiatives that um, was really important for um, Iceland was to follow up on the ambitious action plan that the government of Iceland laid out a little over uh, three years ago. Uh, and the action plan, it actually it comprises 50 different actions and they go across different sectors and those are funded activities um, that will enable Iceland to move closer towards its goal of reaching carbon neutrality. But an important component is also for each one of the sectors to lay out their path. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Green by Iceland coordinated and facilitated the work of pulling together uh, the um, status within each one of the sectors and um, creating a holistic picture of where we were so we could get a good understanding, holistic understanding of uh, where we could go uh, together as a, you could say, Team Iceland on reaching carbon neutrality. So uh, that was a really important milestone. Now um, the government of Iceland, as long as the uh, business sectors are taking the next step, uh, we are not uh, working uh, uh, on a day-to-day basis on, on that work. Uh, however, we are supporting that journey. And what we do is to uh, bring together different stakeholders in dialogue where the dialogue needs maybe to go at a deeper level. And those those stakeholders in the dialogue you're having, um, I'd like to kind of discuss, I suppose, the, mm. <clears throat> the challenges that mm. they're facing. Like, for a lot of our listeners, um, the challenges usually are around kind of pre-competitive collaboration, mm-hmm. funding, mm-hmm. Um, lack of certainty from green policy, mm-hmm. certainly in the current economic mm-hmm. uh, crisis that the UK finds itself with energy bills and cost of living. There's all these external factors at play. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that some of those uh, translate to Icelandic businesses as well? What are the kind of common challenges that they're really working to overcome in these dialogues that yeah, you mentioned. Absolutely. I think uh, one of the challenges has been just to understand the overall picture because uh, we know that we need to uh, eliminate the fossil fuels and that will go across each and every single sector. Um, which technologies will be applied? Uh, how much energy will be needed? Those are the types of questions you know we are have been actively working towards answering within the different sectors. And some of the sectors, of course, also uh, they um, need to work together because the solution will uh, be applied across sectors. So those are the types of uh, challenges that uh, um, we have been facing, and, and many of the ones that you also mentioned, of course. Um, but the most important thing is to be uh, really relevant in the dialogue as it is at the current point of, in time. And that's what we are trying to achieve, is to uh, help and enable the stakeholders to connect to one another, to uh, also to create uh, a bit of a, a common understanding that it, it's really important to that we listen out to one another and see kind of like the opportunities and the challenges to figure out the best solutions 
going ahead because at the end of the day it also needs to be a really just transition and sustainable you know for all involved and I'm, I'm glad you uh, mentioned uh, not the just transition aspect because mm. it does it does seem um, that the the climate movement and is really picking up pace and I mean mm. we, we heard around the room earlier all these exciting companies mm. really kind of leading edge and um, we'll be hearing some of them later on in this episode of the solutions they're bringing but it, it can also uh, feel like that some sectors are going to be left behind mm. or, or could be left behind if those kind of conversations and dogs around a just transition mm-hmm. don't come in and you mentioned the, the big kind of 2040 goal that the nation mm. has for you and as we kind of embark on this kind of next era of, of climate innovation and we, we've heard obviously we're going to be hearing from carbon capture firms, the, the organisations that are using geothermal energy to recycle, mm-hmm. uh, kind of really thinking about net zero for a whole mm-hmm. lens. In terms of that 2040 goal for you, though, what are the kind of um, what are the kind of the steps that need to happen to ensure that that just transition mm-hmm. is delivered, mm-hmm. um, and that you know certain sectors and mm-hmm. certain parts of the society and, and geographically aren't left behind mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, I think uh, at the offset of it, we really need to have a really good set of uh, just information and knowledge where we are uh, at each point of time throughout the journey, because it's a journey. Uh, to reach these these goals, and then uh, the, um, the the second most important thing is to ensure that there is a transparent, uh, open, uh, honest communication about you know what is uh, what is working well and where we might have issues we, which we need to tackle together. Uh, so at the end of the day, it's really about. Uh, the dialogue and being really humble about that we are willing to listen in to all different perspectives. We, we are going through a huge change. It is a transformation uh, and it will mean that all of us, we will need to uh, start uh, approaching you know, the new future and from different perspectives together. Um, and, um, uh, and, and so it, it is at the end of the day all about getting all the stakeholders on board that journey. No, absolutely, I agree with that 100%. And not my, my final question um, is that we are seeing a country almost completely powered by renewables, mm. almost 100%. Um, and you mentioned earlier when we were networking that this is something that the country's been doing for 100 years mm. um, and what a, what a transformation it's been. Mm. Obviously, we don't have 100 years until 2050 and the 2040s mm. when, when the world needs to deliver this mm. change. Do you, you know, do you believe that a global kind of net zero shift can be delivered? And mm. I suppose if, if, you know, our audience of sustainability professionals are at home and it can be easy to be um, dissuaded sometimes, mm. uh, you know, when you're trying to fight a good fight and you feel like you're swimming against the tide mm. of the movement, you know, what, what kind of, I suppose, rallying cry would you have to them to yeah. kind of keep up the work? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point and a fair point. Uh, but I suppose if you look at it from the point of view that there are so many opportunities ahead when building uh, a bigger, uh, more sustainable green future and with just this um, uh, well vision that we have as a global community, uh, then that, that is what um, makes me believe that we will, as we communicate where we have to go and why we have to go, it, there and why it's really important. I think we will gradually get everyone on board and everybody will start also uh, tying into their role in that journey. Uh, how big or small that role can be because the, the, the 
the uh, fascinating thing about this journey is that everyone plays a role. We are all parts uh, and really uh, important pieces of this puzzle to get us uh, to, to uh, a carbon neutral future. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure there, there's a lot of obstacles on the way and we don't really have a lot of time. But uh, that should push us every single day, um, whether that's at home or in our uh, work uh, environments and when working with other partners, we should be thinking, how, what can we do differently uh, tomorrow that we're doing you know, today? So it is, it's about uh, triggering that mindset to enable innovation, to enable you know, new ways of uh, going into the new future. That's a, a great note to um, finish on. Thank you so much um, for that and for your insight today. I know there's a, a shuttle coming to pick us up because um, we're off to the geothermal uh, lagoons and spas soon. So oh. I'm going to uh, make sure I've got my swimming trunks and, uh, and uh, carry on that. But no, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. You're in for a treat in yeah, the warm I water. So. I hope so. <laughs>
any other kind of um, setups or production for the products. So, um, so that kind of how it started. So it kind of formed uh, organically, and um, now uh, we see that uh, we have to form it. So it was officially formed in uh, around 2013. It formed as a proper. Uh, resource park and now we have 10 companies utilizing both electricity and other resources from uh, the geothermal resource so uh, that has eliminated uh, waste from our own operations we still can do better in that regards we have some uh, minor opportunities now because we utilize almost everything but uh, yes and it'd be great if we could get a couple of examples of the yes. the companies that are and and how they're utilizing the park to help with their own kind of efficiencies as they as they grow so first of all it's the blue lagoon is probably the most uh, famous example and it's become famous around the world for tourists so um the Blue Lagoon was formed uh, from um, from our power plant it's the geothermal brine that was actually uh, fluent uh, like was flowing to, to the lava and that formed the blue lagoon and uh, luckily some crazy people started bathing in it and they saw some um, healing properties of the water of the blue lagoon and uh, that kind that's kind of how it developed and they are now de uh, having several hotels it's big on tourism also cosmetic products from it because uh, the uh, geothermal brine contains a lot of silica which is um, very good for the skin as well as they are utilizing the co2 to um, produce algae for their cosmetics uh, products yes and more they're almost utilizing everything uh, from our geothermal operations then we have uh, a great example which is a stolt sea farm uh, an aquaculture farm uh, on land aquaculture that is uh, uh, growing um, warm water fish senegal sole it's called uh, a flat fish uh, for export it only it's usually only found in the southern hemisphere because it needs a very warm seawater but uh, because of our power plants are cooled with or one of our power plants is cooled with seawater we can just let the sea uh, water flow to the to the aquaculture farm and they can farm it there and uh, it uh, it has a resource which is rare it's actually more sustainable yeah i mean we um we managed to go to the one of the lagoons yesterday so i'm glad those yes. crazy people did start yes. uh, doing it, otherwise i wouldn't have got to experience yeah. that which is great and um in terms of uh, the park expansion, it's clear that circularity and the mm -hmm. utilization of resources mm -hmm. is very important. So for for future plans, you know, what's on the horizon and how are you going to ensure that any um, organization that does come into the resource park mm -hmm. kind of embraces that ethos around mm -hmm. circularity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we we are quite selective on uh, on the companies that enter enters the resource park and uh, to whom we sell these products. And um, we have around 50 hectares of uh, plant land around uh, one of our power plants. And that's how we see circularity fostering in the future. We are doing infrastructure planning. So um, 
so things are ready so this will be like a one-stop shop for energy infrastructure and uh, resources we are now seeing since we have eliminated waste from our owner operations that we have to take a step for uh, a step further and um, actually get our customers to embrace circularity and that's how we are also picking um, uh, businesses to our park is thinking how can this customer enhance circularity and close the loop so to say so uh, a good example would be um, would be an e-fuels plant mm -hmm. that that would be a key component in this because they would provide like when you produce hydrogen for example they provide oxygen as a byproduct and also thermal energy oxygen can be used in aquaculture and they clean the co2 that can be used in algae or greenhouses so there are so many opportunities and uh, we are just as we speak s designing it on how we want it to be in the future really and i suppose final question because i know hs has got some really ambitious uh mm -hmm. carbon goals the 2040 goal to be kind of carbon neutral as well so does the resource park and the customers that would come in and utilize it build build into that in terms of how you account their scope emissions oh or? yes 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 definitely because uh as you utilize the waste somehow it actually cuts down emissions because uh, it's being neutralized. So that's kind of uh, that's one of the one of the goals. Yes. It does sound like there's a lot of work into um, managing a resource park. So I won't keep you uh, any more, Danny. But it's been a no pleasure problem. speaking to you. Thank you. Yeah. While day two wraps up following that interview and a brief look at the resource park, day two brings more rain and more mist, but also more expert insight from the geothermal operators in Iceland. Another bus journey brings us to arguably the biggest name on an itinerary for this trip, Carbfix. Carbfix is a major storage company out in Iceland and is most known for its partnership with Climeworks, the Swiss carbon capture giant that has signed massive deals with the likes of Microsoft to help them with emissions reductions and removals. We're greeted by Carbfix's head of communications and marketing, Olafur Tita Jonsson, who is able to take us inside one of the carbon uh, piping facilities. So the hissing that you'll hear in the background of this next chat is actually the carbon being pumped directly into the ground where it is permanently stored um, by turning CO2 into stone. The facility itself is very small. Uh, we enter a small dome-shaped building that can fit maybe 15 people at maximum. And uh, Johnson heads behind an intricate labyrinth of pipes uh, that rise to and from the ground and explains how the facility works. This facility is how uninteresting really it is. It is a couple of pipes going <laughs> into the ground and it is kind of, it doesn't really match the excitement of what is happening in the ground. Um, so, uh, but it also means that this can be, this is not really some operation that is has a lot of footprint you know, the land use is, is fairly limited of course we need injection wells and some pipes that can be underground but it's not really a sensitive operation that has to be somewhere far away it can be uh, close to other industries and, and that's not really a problem uh, and it's even though we hear some flowing here it's not really noisy it's not emitting anything and, and, and so it's fairly, uh, I would say, uh, friendly to, uh, to potential neighbors and so uh, Well, for every ton 
of CO2, we need over 20 tons of water. So then we can do the math, whatever the tonnage is, multiply by 20, 25 liters. It flows through the pores in the rock and releases metals from the rock and they, like they would in nature, uh, form these minerals. Uh, and importantly, the mineralization is not happening immediately where it is injected because then everything would just fog up. Uh, so it happens uh, further out. After the deep dive, pun intended, into how Carbfix's solutions works, we're able to visit the company's headquarters where I'm able to grab a few minutes with the chief executive, Ada Aradotta, to find out what the company's plans are to scale up. So Ada, thank you so much um, for joining me for what I know it was a pretty brief chat because you are incredibly uh, busy today. But um, we've obviously heard a lot on our uh, podcast already about um, the, the how and the what of Carbfix, which is good. But I want to spend uh, my time with you looking a bit ahead to the future and a bit about the why that Carbfix is so important. So as a kind of starting point, which is a, a very broad question, where do you see Carbfix and, and the solution to kind of permanently store carbon uh, and mineralize it underground? How, where does that fit in with everything else that needs to happen to kind of reach net zero emissions by 2050? It's one of the solutions that we need to reach our climate targets. Uh, definitely not and, and absolutely not the only solution. Of course, we need to scale uh, a lot of, of uh, technological solutions, uh, transitioning to renewable energy, increasing energy efficiency, saving energy. But the third largest category globally uh, for climate action, it is to capture and store carbon. And that's where our technology comes in. Brilliant. And I was looking at the interactive map you have up on your website that looks at the potential uh, locations. And I think it was in Europe alone, you could theoretically store at least uh, 4 billion tons of CO2 in the rocks. Um, and I think in the map, there's even some uh, relatively good options in the UK or certainly Ireland uh, at least. But in terms of turning that, that kind of theoretical estimate into what could be potentially transformative reality, mm -hmm. what, are, what are the kind of enabling um, factors at play that will help you expand? Is it, is it policy? Is it more kind of technical development? Is it investments? What, what's the kind of key barriers you're wanting to overcome right now? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's all of that. Of course, you know, if we look at, if we look at scaling, first we need, in a, in a certain location, we need the favorable geology, which we find in many parts of the world. And these formations are one of the most common rock types on Earth. And as you explain, much larger potential than is ever needed for for climate action so that, that's that's good uh, then of course we need the we need the right right policies in place that allow us to to build these types uh, of project and and again in many parts of the world we're already there and and including with sort of lucrative incentives or uh, like the ets system that puts a price on carbon so we already have uh, very favorable incentives for for these value chains to to be built up um, and, and we see that, that because of, because of these, these regulations and changes made in regulations in Europe and US, for example, that the industry is on the move, certainly. Uh, so so I, would, I would say we, we are in a good place, finally, and, and we should be able to see very drastic scale-up of technologies like, like ours uh, in, in the coming years. And we are certainly busy day in and day out working, working on that. But, but these things, of course, take time. We have to make sure that, that we do uh, develop the project properly, understand the subsurface, and, and uh, when needed, build them up in stages. Might start with a pilot to, to understand the underground uh, to the level that we need to, so that the overall build-up of the project is as economical as, as possible. 
Uh, for, for our audience, a lot of our audience are the sustainability professionals that work in, in-house for, for the manufacturers, um, like Rio Tinto being a prime example uh, in Iceland. And they're obviously looking at ways to um, cover and reduce and basically eliminate their emissions as close as possible. But I think the issue they've run into with issues like carbon capture, removal, and even kind of nature-based uh, variants of that is the, the, the lack of transparency, the, the issues that the accounting's not quite right. It seems to me, and this is why I'm asking you this, because my knowledge is very limited, that Carbon Solution wouldn't necessarily run into that issue because once it's in the ground, it's there permanently. So do you see this as a down the line a viable option for, for biz- end users, businesses, to be able to transparently account for their scope for emissions that are deemed unavoidable? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, a, and a big strength of our technology is, of course, it's that we can measure down to the gram the CO2 that goes into the ground. And then we very carefully monitor and, and show and prove that none of this is, is on the first hand, leaking. Uh, and, and secondly, that all the CO2 is rapidly mineralizing. So this is, this is a true strength uh, of our technology. And we've put a lot of work in the recent years into developing a methodology that can be independently verified and certified by a third party like DNV, and this we've done for 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 some of our projects already, uh, so that that you know uh, we have a certification showing uh, what is the net benefit uh, and true climate benefit of, of a certain certain project. And and you're right, this this distinguishes our technology from many of the other other others out there. And I, I see you're wearing your SDG uh, Climate Action 13 uh, badge on, on your blazer. And I'd just like to get an idea of what uh, your kind of action is going to be over the coming years. Is it, what's in the kind of pipeline in terms of scale up development? What's your ambitions, I suppose? Our ambitions is to have real impact uh, on climate, to, to, to uh, scale our technology. We, we truly believe it can have a an impact globally and, and that it is a very good way of, of reducing emissions also working with carbon removals uh, permanently storing co2 and this is nature's way of, of doing just that uh, so so our our ambition is is to to scale the technology to do so globally uh, but to do that in partnerships we want to focus on what what we are really good at which is storing uh, co2 putting the co2 into favorable formations making sure that it mineralizes so 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 we built our scale up model on strong partnerships with emitters uh, with capture companies with all the players in the value chains that we need to build up and and i I truly believe that that by doing it this way, we we are we can scale up that much quicker, uh, which is of course uh, what we need. Uh, we we have been working with with some of the you know largest companies of the world uh, in developing projects how they can reduce their emissions locally where we have favorable formations. We are we are uh, also working on. Uh, building large-scale mineral storage hubs that allow for cross-border transport uh, of CO2 and then thirdly of course carbon removals uh, with with duck companies for example or companies that that are doing bio uh, CCS so so um, by sort of a, a developing all these value chains uh, in parallel uh, building up projects along the value chains uh, in parallel continuing R&D so that the, we can take the technology even further uh, that's that's really uh, the big plan. <laughs> a big plan it is indeed. So uh, thank you so much uh, for your time, Ed. I think uh, we're about to um, be shuttled off to our next stop on this uh, Iceland tour. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
So there you have it, a whistle-stop tour of Iceland and how it is harnessing the geothermal energy it has in abundance to not just drive a clean energy future, but start to explore some of the transformative solutions like carbon capture that many nations and businesses are betting big on to reach their net zero goals. I've been Edie's content editor Matt Mace reporting from Iceland and you're next here from me back in our more traditional setting of the podcast studio alongside Luke, Sarah and Jade. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>